The title for this 80th lesson in our Life of Christ study is A Taxing Situation. This is a play on words, by the way, because we're actually going to be looking at two taxing situations in our lesson this morning, which I said was lesson 80 in your new books, and we're going to be in Matthew 17 and also begin Matthew 18 if you want to position yourselves there. But this first taxing situation resulted in a miracle. This will be the 29th miracle in our Life of Christ study, and it was the miracle of Simon's fishy coin. And the second taxing situation was the result of some feuding Christians. Well, we don't have those today, do we? (laughs) Fussing, feuding Christians. And it resulted in a sermon. This is the seventh sermon in our Life of Christ study, and it's going to take us a few weeks to cover, but we will begin it today. So look with me at Matthew 17, verses 24 to 27. It says in verse 24, And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He, Peter, saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, meaning Jesus spoke before he could, before Peter could say anything. Jesus said, What thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute, of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea and cast an hook, And take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. That take and give unto them for me and thee. All right, what we have here is shortly after the transfiguration and the deliverance of the boy demoniac, the Lord and his disciples came to Capernaum. Now this, you might want to make a note in your Bibles, if you write in your Bibles, that this was his very last visit to Capernaum. Remember Capernaum? has been his headquarters for his whole Galilean ministry. It was the most privileged city of all time in history, I think, because it was the city most privileged with the Lord's presence. He performed more miracles there than any other city. This would be his last visit to Capernaum. This was also the city where Peter lived, and most likely Peter's home served as the setting for the next two recorded events in the Lord's life, not only this talk with Peter here about the tax money, the tribute money for the temple, but also the next event probably took place, the sermon was probably given in Peter's home. Well, at some point in time, during this last visit to Capernaum, Peter was outside walking around somewhere in the city when those who collected the tribute money for the operation and the maintenance of the temple approached him, and they asked him... an. A question. It was not an innocent question. This this was a question that they had obviously been set up to ask by the religious rulers in order to trip up Jesus and and, uh, discredit him before the public. What was that question? The question was, doesn't your master pay the tax? The tribute, the uh, temple tribute tax is what they're talking about. Now, the history of this tax takes us back to the time of Moses, when Moses was inspired by God to um, have a tax. This is, you can read about it in Exodus chapter 30. It was actually a half of a shekel. Two drachmas were worth a half shekel. It was a tax that was made mandatory when every Israelite male turned 20. He was to pay a half shekel 
for the upkeep. Well, first of all, originally it was for the building of the tabernacle. They had to have money in order to build the tabernacle. So it was imposed on every boy, man, when he turned 20. Um, And it was a a once-in-a-lifetime tax. They only paid it that one time. And it was to build the tabernacle and then after that to maintain the tabernacle. Well, after the Israelites were taken into Babylon and then returned from Babylon, they had to rebuild the temple. Remember, it had been destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. So they decided to reinstitute this tax. This tax had gone out. You know, it wasn't anymore when they went into captivity, obviously. But they reinstituted it in order to help rebuild the temple. However, by the time of Christ... The payment of this tax had become an annual thing, not just once in a lifetime that a male paid when he turned 20, but they decided, the rabbis, you know how they changed everything, they decided that this would become an annual tax, but they also made it a voluntary tax. It was no longer imposed on men when they turned 20, although if they didn't pay it when they turned 20 and then for the rest of their life every year, they were strongly criticized as violators of rabbinic tradition. Now, the amount of the tax was two drachmas. Well, that's Greek money, which is equivalent in Jewish money to a half shekel. In first century Israel, this amounted to about two days' wages for a common laborer. It was not a Roman tax. I want you to understand that. It wasn't a Roman tax. The money itself was collected by Jewish tax collectors who were assigned to do so by the religious rulers of Israel who had received permission from Rome to collect this tax. The money collected was used to pay for, at this point in time, the temple already was built. Well, Herod was actually building it, but the money was built to, I mean, the money was collected in order to pay for the supplies for the temple, such as the oil, you know, that they would put into the, um, the candelabra, the menorah. It was, pay, it was used to pay for the salaries of the rabbis, and it was used to pay for the animal inspectors and the copyists and the bakers and the women who washed the temple linens. The tax was also used to cover repairs and maintenance, you know, for, for the temple itself. So it was, not, it was not an evil tax. There was nothing wrong with the tax itself. It went for a noble cause. All right, and it was very obviously the religious rulers, the Jewish religious rulers, who prompted the tax collectors to approach Peter with this particular question. And their underlying motive in doing so was to challenge the Lord Jesus as to the matter of paying this tax. Since he claimed to be the Messiah... They assumed that he would refuse to pay it. And if he did, they would have another charge against him to use publicly, you know, in discrediting him. I forgot to tell you that the religious rulers themselves exempted themselves from paying the tax. (laughs) That's an important point. (laughs) Yes, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) They said that they were exempt because they were, they were doing God's work. So really what they're, this is really showing us how their opinion of Jesus has gone down, down, down. Because we haven't heard, he's been in ministry now for about two and a half years and nobody approached him about paying the tax at, until this point. Because they knew he, until this point, everybody accepted the fact that he was a master teacher. He was like a rabbi. 
and they knew and understood that the rabbis did not pay this tax. They were exempt from it. So this is a challenge to his authority. And it's also a way of, of trying to trip him up publicly because they would say, if he refused to pay it, you know, if he said, well, I'm not going to pay it because I'm the Messiah. If you guys are exempt as rabbis, I surely am exempt as, as, a, as the Son of God and as the Messiah, the long-promised seed of the woman. And if he did that, they would say, well, you're not temple-friendly. <laughs> and uh, they already knew he wasn't too temple-friendly. Of course, he supported his father's house, absolutely. But he had already gone in one time, hadn't he, and cleansed it of all the greedy money changers and the, all the corruption that was going on in there. So I think that they were really hoping that he would not pay this tax, and then they would accuse him publicly of not being temple-friendly. Well, when Peter was asked if his master would pay this tax, he, what does Peter do when he's caught off guard? He wasn't ready for this question, and that's, that's always a danger for Peter. When he was asked this question, he was caught off guard, and immediately his first reaction was to try to protect his master, shield his master from any... Um, especially the dread predictions that, you know, that he had been saying. He was going to be um, betrayed. He was going to suffer at the hands of these religious rulers, and he was going to be killed. So Peter thinks of that, and he wants to shield him. He, he doesn't want any further endangerment to the Lord. He wants Jesus to be at peace with all men. So immediately, without thinking, again, he uh, thinks only of the present moment and present safety. And he says, yes not even considering the Lord's true position. You know, he had already said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the, of the living God. G uh, Peter knew. Peter knew Jesus' true position. He knew who he was in his mind. But it didn't so seem to quite yet uh, matter in his life, did it? I mean, he, it, it just took, it's taking a while for it to sink in. What should Peter have answered these tax collectors? He should have said, of course he's not going to pay the tax. Why should he pay the tax? He might have said, well, maybe he will for your sakes, which is what he does. But he should have said, he's the Messiah. The, the temple is all about him. He does not need to pay this tax. Don't you know who he is? What's the matter with you guys? You're not even exempting him as a master teacher, a rabbi? That's what he should have said if he had been thinking properly. And then, but he didn't. He said yes. He just said yes, and he ran home. <laughs> and probably ran to his own home, because that's where they usually stayed when they were in Capernaum. Remember it was in Peter's home that they lowered the paralytic from the roof? That was Peter's home. And it was also, of course, in Peter's home that his mother-in-law was healed. So we assume this was Peter's home. He runs back to, to Jesus, and he's about to you know, burst through the door and tell the Lord that he had just run into the IRS... <laughs> but Jesus beat him to the punch. And you have to be fast to beat Peter to the punch. <laughs> but Jesus spoke before Peter could open his mouth. And he, <laughs> he again revealed his omniscience because he, it made, what he said made it very clear that he already, had known, he already knew what had taken place out there. Isn't that amazing? The Lord sees everything. He knew exactly what went on. Not just with Peter, but he knew what all his disciples were doing. He knew what all people were doing. Isn't that amazing to think that he can know what everybody in the whole universe is doing at the same time? But he knew what had happened, and he um, even knew 
what Peter was thinking. Don't we have to speculate about that? We uh, we can we can wonder. We can't know for sure what Peter was thinking, but perhaps he was wondering if Jesus would actually pay this tax. Maybe he would pay the. You know, he had said yes, he would pay it. Maybe Peter had actually seen the Lord pay it before. I don't know. Usually, the males would pay it when they went to Jerusalem for one of the the feast days. So maybe Jesus had paid this tax before. I don't know. Uh, maybe Peter wondered if he would not pay it, because after all, he is, he was the Messiah. Why should he pay it? He may have been wondering if Jesus would pay it because he was aware of all the corruption that went on in the temple. Maybe he was wondering if Jesus did pay it, where in the world he would get the money to pay it, because Jesus was absolutely Poverty-stricken. He had, he gave you know he gave up so much so that we could have so much so that we could be rich in Christ. He literally became poverty-stricken. He didn't own anything except the clothes on his back. He didn't have money. You know he performed all of his miracles for free. Now if anybody ever gave anything because of um, being healed and they wanted to give to the ministry, the alms that they gave went right into Judas's bag, and they weren't. Jesus didn't use those for his own personal needs. He used them for the ministry so that they could buy their daily bread. So maybe Peter thought, I'll pay the tax for him. I'm sure, you know, it was, Peter was in his own home. Don't you know that Peter at least had a, had a half shekel in the home? Because he had been a fisherman and had been in the fishing business for quite some time. And his wife was there. And I don't know if he had children. We know he had a mother-in-law. They were living off of something. So maybe Peter thought, well, I'll just go ahead and pay for the Lord. But So the bottom line is we don't really know what Peter was thinking, but we do know that the Lord used this occasion to teach Peter, and consequently all of us who read the scripture, a lesson on the believer's responsibility as we live in this world. Now we know that as true believers, and I hope you all are, that you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and that you you, um, have your citizenship in heaven, because our citizenship really is not here in this world, is it? We're just pilgrims, sojourners, passing through. Our true citizenship is in heaven. But in the meantime, we are, we do populate this earth. And we have, as believers, we have certain responsibilities as temporary citizens of this world. So that's what the Lord was going to teach Peter now. And he began his lesson, as he often did, with some questions of his own. And notice he now calls Peter Simon. Poor Peter is back to his first name. <laughs> He's not the rock right here. He says, Jesus says, What thinkest thou, Simon, <clears throat> of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? What he is doing here basically is an illustration that says, you know, kings, think about this, Peter, do kings tax their own sons? their own family? Would a king tax his own son when he turned 20? No. Who do kings tax? They, they, ta- they tax their, their subjects. When he says strangers, he's really talking about the king's subjects. So you see what the Lord is doing in this illustration where he speaks of kings, heads of state, and their taxes. He is actually reaching beyond just religious taxes. We, have, we can take this account here and take it beyond t- 
taxes that would go to church ministries. The Lord is extending this beyond to all kinds of taxes, to even what we have to pay before April 15th, government taxes. So he's saying, you know, basically what he's telling Peter is that he is the son of God. Um, He was inferring that since the tax under discussion was a tax used to support the temple, which was his father's house, he'd already called it his father's house, and that infuriated the religious rulers. But since it was a tax for his father's house, he being the son, S-O-N, was of course exempt. That's what he's telling Peter. I am exempt. I do not have to pay this tax. He affirmed to Peter by making this statement that he is the son of God. He is the heir of all things. The temple is his temple because it is his father's house. So he's telling Peter that he's not obligated to pay this tax for the temple service. And you know the Lord needed to make this statement. He needed to make this statement to Peter where he said, you know, then are the children, to ask those questions and then answer and say, then are the children free? Because if he had said nothing and simply gone ahead and paid the tax, then some men down through the, the corridors of church history would use his payment of the temple tax to say, even though they wouldn't be right, they would use this to say that Jesus did not claim to be the son of God. He didn't even claim exemption as a master teacher as a, or as a rabbi. Don't you know people would jump on that if he hadn't made this statement. On the other hand, if he had ended his teaching ses- session with Peter, right here in verse uh, 26, if he had just made those statements to Peter and not gone ahead and actually paid the tax, then other Christians would jump on the bandwagon and say that they too, as sons of God, you know, with a small s, sons of God, should be exempt from paying taxes. If Jesus didn't pay it, and we're joint heirs with Jesus, then we too don't need to pay our taxes. You see? So he needed not only to make those statements to Peter, But then he also, for our example, needed to go ahead and pay the tax, even though he himself was exempt from paying it. He did it for our example. He did not end his lesson with verse 26. Instead, what did he do? He told Peter how to go about obtaining the necessary tax money. He told him to go down to the sea, and that would be, of course, the Sea of Galilee, with which Peter was very familiar because he had fished on that sea his entire life. Probably as a little boy, he started fishing. But it was unusual because Peter usually fished using nets, you know, drag nets or throat casting nets. And here he's told just to cast with a, with a pole, to cast a hook out into the water. And what was he to do? He was to take up the very first fish that bit his, his hook, whatever he had on, you know, took the bait, and he would take the fish off, open his mouth, and find in it a piece of money, which would be the exact amount of money necessary to pay the tax, not only for the Lord, but for who else? For Peter. We're going to talk about how amazing of a miracle that really is. You know, if ever there was a tax that the Lord Jesus did not need to pay, it certainly, certainly would have been this one. 
He was the very one that the temple was built to honor. He was the very one whom all, who all the sacrifices and the very various offerings all those years were made. You know, every one of the sacrifices ever offered was a picture of who? Of him, the once for all sacrifice. Did you know that every temple ceremony, every uh, Jewish feast day was a picture of him? It's all about him. Did you know that every piece of furniture, every artifact in the, first of all, the tabernacle and then in the temple was a picture of him in one way or another? From the candelabra to the, the laver where they wash their hands to the, um, the altar to the, uh, the um, Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the veil that, that was between the holy place and the holy of holies. Not only every piece of furniture pictured him in, in one way or another, but uh, every color of the temple, whether it was purple for royalty or red or um, blue, that all was a picture in type of Jesus Christ. Same thing with everything that it was, this stuff was made out of, whether it's gopher wood covered with pitch or overlaid with gold. Every little detail was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. As king of, and you know, he had called it his father's house, had he not? He had even, remember, at one point in time, referred to himself as the temple. He said, destroy this temple, pointing to his own body, and he said, and in three days I'll raise it up. And at another time, he said that he was even greater <laughs> than the temple. That was uh, in Matthew twelve sixteen. As king of kings and lord of lords, creator of everything in existence, Jesus Christ had every right to refuse paying this temple tax. But for our sakes, he willingly put aside all of his divine rights and all of his privileges, including his right as God's son to pay in order to pay this temple tax. So in order to set the example for all of his followers, he told Peter to pay this tax. And what did he say in verse 27? Five very profound words for you and I. He said, go ahead and pay it, Peter, lest we should offend them. If Jesus had refused to pay this tax, he would have given the religious authorities an excuse. Invalid as it would have been, he still would have given them an excuse to discredit him before the public because the public wouldn't understand. Even his disciples didn't understand everything fully at this point, as we just saw with Peter. So if they didn't understand, surely the public wouldn't understand, and they would say, well, he can't be the Messiah because he doesn't even want to support the temple work. And this would have caused many people to what? Be offended. In other words, um, stumble. The Greek word for offended is skandalizo. They would stumble. They would trip up. And it would have given also Christians throughout the centuries an excuse to... um, resist government policies and taxes by claiming special exemption status as children of God. So if the Son of God claimed no exemption for himself because of his concern not to give offense to any anyone, then should we not, of course, as his followers, also be under obligation as our responsibility as people who populate this, this earth and live in our country to be honest, tax-paying Citizens, should we pay our taxes, lady, ladies? Yes, we should pay our taxes, and we should even try not to grumble about it. 
I know we don't support everything that our tax money goes to, to support. I know that. And Jesus didn't support, certainly, all the stuff that was going on in the temple either. But <clears throat> we do live in a country where we are free to do what we're doing this morning. And that alone is worth paying our taxes for. We do have some fine highway systems. You know, aren't you glad that we don't have to take a horse and buggy to get to where I couldn't even come to Bible study. It would take me a whole day to get here. We have nice highways. We have, we have beautiful parks, national parks. There, if you think about it, there are a lot of good things that our taxes go for. Uh, <clears throat> and we know, of course, that all governments on earth are corrupt. To one degree or another, every single one of them is corrupt. And I believe they are getting even more and more corrupt as evil men are waxing worse and worse. But we are under obligation to human government except when obedience would cause us to disobey God's law. And actually, God's law tells us to support our government. It says in Romans 13, you might want to turn over there, Romans 13. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, let every soul be subject to the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Who put the powers there? God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. If we resist our government, we're resisting God. You know, whether those powers are there because of <laughs> judgment or it even says that. And look at verse uh, 5 to 7. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath. Sometimes, I don't know what's going to happen in the next election. It can be pretty scary, but it may be for wrath. Judgment. He says, but also for conscience sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are minister, God's ministers. Render, therefore, to all their duties, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. You know what? You may not agree with everything President Bush does. But one thing that we as Christians should not engage in is all this Bush bashing. And even whoever is the next president, we do not bash the position. We may not respect the person in that position, but we are to honor the position. And it is so unchristian, it is so wrong to, to do what so many are doing, even Christians. And we know that Peter learned this lesson because in his first epistle he talks about this same thing. He says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And he goes on and says, honor all men, fear God, honor the king. We could say, honor the president. So being a citizen of God's kingdom does not exempt us from being responsible and obedient to human kingdoms, no matter how corrupt or bad they might be. As a matter of fact, being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven actually means that we are all the more responsible to be good examples to human kingdoms. Because we're Christians, we should, we should be the best citizens of all. The biblical principle that Jesus was exemplifying here really is that of Christian humility. Humility that is willing to give up its liberties, give up its rights, rather than giving offense by insisting on them. Since the tax itself that he went ahead and paid was not an evil thing, you know, it was actually went to a noble cause. You know, those women that washed the linens, 
had to, had to make a little something to live on. The rabbis had to feed their families, you know, and it was all, it was for a noble cause. So therefore, Christ would not unnecessarily offend others. There's, so there's profound wisdom in his five words, lest we should offend them. And you know, whenever the, the New Testament uses that word scandalizo, offend, it is always speaking in a spiritual sense. He didn't care about offending them politically or, you know, in other cases, maybe mentally or whatever. But, but he didn't want anybody to stumble over him spiritually. And we shouldn't want to offend anybody spiritually. That's the main thing. He is the only way to salvation. So, of course, he didn't want anybody to stumble spiritually over him. And these words teach us that there are situations in which you and I must, must bury our own rights in order to submit to requirements we may not completely agree with or approve of, rather than give offense and hinder the spread of the gospel message. You know, but when it comes to, on the other hand, there's always a fine balance with everything. On the other hand, that's talking of our own rights. You know, like Christ was willing to give up his own rights. But when it came to his father's rights and and the truth of the word of God, we don't ever bend for that. We don't bend when it comes to God's truth. But there are occasions, such as the Lord demonstrated here, in which it reveals more grace in a Christian to submit than to resist. A.B. Bruce said that it, this, he said, quote, It is not a mark of greatness in the kingdom to bluster about our rights. We hear so much about this on, on the news, don't we? Rights, rights, rights. Everybody's talking about their rights. When right and wrong are not involved, Christ readily gave up his rights. And that's the same position that you and I should take. Now, when, on the other hand, as I said, it was a matter of compromising with evil, he didn't care who he offended. Uh, for example, I think it was over in Matthew fifteen twelve. Remember how shocked his men were? They said, Lord, don't you know that you just offended the Pharisees? Well, he didn't care. You know, he was sticking up for what was truth, and that's a, another whole ballgame. He never watered down his message. He, um, if something conflicted with the laws of God, he didn't hesitate to call evil, evil. All right, so do you get the balance? I hope you do. There are times when we will need to swallow our pride. Actually, we should always swallow our pride and our rights, and our Christian liberties, lest we offend others spiritually and hinder the gospel. And that's what Paul and his traveling companions, uh, or Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 9.12 when he said, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. That's the last thing we want to do, is cause somebody to stumble so that they do not hear our message. Our message is the most important of all, the gospel of Christ. Now, before we go on to the second part of our lesson this morning, I wanted to talk about some interesting things regarding this miracle. First of all, did you notice what a paradox it is that the king of kings, lord of lords, heir of all that God possesses, the creator of all heaven and all earth, was too poverty-stricken to even pay the, the annual 
half-shekel tax, which was two days' wages for a common laborer. And yet, at the very same time, to provide the money in order to pay that tax, he demonstrated his kingship over even the fish of the sea. Do you see the paradox in that? You know, for our sakes, I was reading one commentator, I don't remember who it was, but he said that as, as people living today in 21st century America, we can't even begin to visualize how poor the Lord was. He did not even have a place to lay his head at night that belonged to him. You know, he was born and put into a borrowed manger, right? He was laid to rest for three days in a borrowed tomb. And in between, he never owned anything other than the linen robe on his, on his body. He didn't own anything. He lived off of um, the generosity of people who would feed him or give some alms so they could buy their daily bread. And yet, and he did all that so that we could become rich in him. Um, but he, he, in order to pay this tax, he, hum, he showed his dominion even over the fish of the sea. It's such an amazing miracle. Do you know how big the Sea of Galilee is? It's not just a little pond. I have a little pond in my backyard. It's not just a pond. It's a big lake with hundreds and thousands of fish in it. Now, Peter was only one fisherman on that, on that lake that day. I don't know where he went to position himself. Probably somewhere close to his house. He throws out his fishing pole. Not the pole. He didn't throw the pole in the water. He threw out the line. <laughs> and, and Jesus didn't say, fish all day, Peter, and then look in the mouth of every one of those fish. He said, the very first fish that bites, open its mouth, and there the money will be. Now, you think of all those fish swimming around and all the different fishermen in the, in the lake that particular day, and yet the one fish that had one coin, which was exactly the right amount, and by the way, there was no such coin as a half shekel. There was no such coin. Um, it would be like we don't have a half of a quarter, which would be uh, 12 and a half cents, right? <laughs> they didn't have a half shekel coin. So what was common for men to do was that two men would go in together because there was a shekel. Two men would go in together to pay the tax. And he, that's exactly what we have here, isn't it? There was a, one shekel in the fish's mouth. But it's so amazing that that fish, I guess Jesus, you know, he heard the command from the mind of Jesus. He had dominion even over the fish. And that one particular fish, fish got the message, swim over to Peter. Now, how did he know which man was Peter? Maybe fish are brighter than we think they are. But he went to Peter's hook and bit it. Now, where did the coin come from? Well, the Lord knew there was a coin out there. He knew which fish put the coin in his mouth. I don't know if the coin was dropped that very day because it makes me wonder how the fish could have survived very long. It must have been just that day, maybe just a few seconds before he went over to Peter. That coin came from a boat up above and the fish opened his mouth and in it went. But another thing that fishermen have a wonder about is how did the fish open his mouth to bite the hook without losing the coin? You know, it's all. The more you think about it, it is an amazing miracle. It really is. The second thing to notice of interest is that Matthew 
is the only gospel writer who told us about this taxing situation miracle. And isn't that interesting? Because who was Matthew before he was a disciple? Exactly. He was a tax collector, so don't you know, this would have been a very interesting account for him and one that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write. Another thing that we want to point out is that this is the only time Jesus ever performed a miracle to meet his own needs. You remember when he was hungry and thirsty for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness and Satan tempted him to meet his own physical needs by turning stones into bread? But he refused to do so. Every other miracle that the Lord ever performed was for someone else's benefit, not his own. And we could even say that in this case, he performed this miracle not for his own selfish need, because he didn't have to pay that tax. He performed this miracle really for others so that they wouldn't stumble over him. You know, the fact that he was a Jew and he did not pay the temple tax and thereby demonstrate disrespect for the house of God. He also used the miracle to to pay for Peter's tax, didn't he? So that people wouldn't stumble over Peter and his testimony. This is also the only miracle that involved money. The only one that involved money. And of course we see, I talk about how we see the omnipotence and the omniscience of the Lord in this miracle. And it's actually a fulfillment of Psalm 8, verses 6 and 8, which says, now the, the Jews understood that Psalm 8 was a messianic, prophecy, a psalm that talked about the Messiah. It says, thou, speaking of God, madest him, the Messiah, to have dominion over the works of thine hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, the Messiah's feet, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea. Did this miracle show that Jesus had dominion even over the fish of the sea? Absolutely. But the psalm goes on to say that he even had dominion over whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. What passes through the paths of the sea besides whales that swallow you know, disobedient prophets <laughs> and boats and jellyfish like bit my son and lobsters? What else passes through the sea? Shekels that are dropped over, accidentally dropped over the side of boats or however that shekel got into the sea. So this is a fulfillment of Psalm 8. Furthermore, it's interesting to notice the Lord's humility, evidenced by the fact that he chose to obtain this tax in in such an unspectacular way. He didn't do it as he could have. He could have had a legion of angels appear in the sky and Gabriel drop a shekel from heaven. You know, so that everybody saw, wow, look how Jesus got his tax money for the temple. He must be the Messiah. He didn't just go like this, and there was a shekel in his hand, or take up a stone. He could have. He could have turned a stone into the tax money. But he did it in such a humble, unspectacular way. Remember, woe unto you, Capernaum. They weren't going to get any more signs. This was a private miracle for Peter. He did tell Matthew about it, we know, because Matthew wrote about it. But he did it through just such a simple way, through the mouth of a slimy sea creature. You know, I wouldn't have wanted to open up the fish's mouth to get the coin. But he did it without any royal fanfare. And also, notice how he determined to allow Peter the privilege to participate in the miracle. You know, the Lord always did his part, the supernatural part, but he allows you and I 
to be involved with him so that we can get the blessing. Don't you know Peter was blessed by this miracle? Don't you know when Peter opened the fish's mouth, the first fish, and saw the exact amount of tax money in there, what he must have thought? Now, here's a guy who had just seen the transfiguration, the unveiled glory of the Son of God, and had walked on water himself. And yet, when he opened, don't you know he's the, oh, he really is. It was just confirmation. He really is the Lord. This is amazing. This is spectacular. Peter got to participate in the blessing. You know, the, the miracles <clears throat> the miracles of God do not discourage our involvement or laziness. Peter also had to obey the Lord, didn't he? He had to obey. Blessings follow obedience. And the Lord did this many, many times. Remember when he told the servants at that wedding to fill the water pots with water? They, they had to do their part, and then he did his part. Same thing with the, using the disciples to distribute the fish and the, and the loaves of bread during the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. So he, allows, he does his part, but he doesn't do what we can do. We have a lot of phones going off today, don't we? <clears throat> All right, lastly, we want to note that this is the only miracle which doesn't have the results spelled out for us. We aren't told that Peter went down to the lake and did this, da-da-da, pulled up the fish. We're not told that. We know that it happened because the mouths of all the, the uh, tax collectors are silenced. And the Lord's word does not return unto him void. You know, everything he says that will happen will happen. So we know that this miracle did take place, but we are not told specifically that it did in the scripture. All right, so that's the end of the first taxing situation. Now let's look real quickly, very quickly, at another taxing situation. And for this, we're going to read Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4. This, this was a, a sermon, probably the number one sermon, that tells Christians how to get along with one another. We need this sermon. It's going to take us a while to get through it. <clears throat> but it was precipitated by some feuding Christians. And who do you think those who were feuding were? The apostles themselves. All right, so let's look at, I want to read two places. I actually also want to read the Mark account, so uh, we'll go to Mark 9 as well. <clears throat> but beginning in Matthew 18, verse 1, it says, At the same time... <clears throat> came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. All right, now Mark 9, I want to read verses 33 and uh, 34. I think <clears throat> it says I'm just going to start reading because reading we're out of time and he came to Capernaum and being in the house that would be Peter's house he asked them what was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way in other words while the disciples were going walking to Capernaum they were arguing among themselves and Jesus says what were you arguing about of course he knew and it says in verse 34 that they didn't want to tell him but they held their peace, for by the way, as they were walking, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about the rest of this, because the rest of it is sort of over in Matthew as well. We have a lesson here on how to um, 
how to get along with one another in the body of Christ. You know that little poem, to live above with saints we love will certainly be glory. To live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. (laughs) The first virtue that the Lord talks about in this sermon, the seventh sermon in our Life of Christ study, is the virtue of humility. And so we're going to be looking at the fact that we should be servants, not celebrities. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to be talking about being stepping stones, not stumbling blocks. Well, you notice the phrase, at the same time, in verse 1 of chapter 18, suggests that this was the very same day that Jesus had sent Peter to fetch the coin to pay the taxes, that his disciples come to him. Now, they had been arguing on their way to Capernaum. Apparently, they kept on arguing, and finally they come to him, and they want this question settled. They say, ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, this was a selfishly motivated question. This was not an honorable question. If it had been a question where they wanted to know who was the greatest among them so that they could exemplify that particular person, that would have been a good motivation. You know, tell us who's the most righteous Jesus among us because we want to be more like him. Of course, the one they should exemplify is he himself, Jesus. But we know that their motive was wrong because the, the Lord went on to talk about humility. <laughs> so they did not ask this question with the right motive. They'd been arguing, uh, arguing about among themselves, and I can almost understand why. Well, three of them only had been selected to go up to see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And even though they didn't talk about with the other disciples what had happened up there, those other men weren't blind. They weren't stupid. They knew probably by the glow on the Lord's face and by the way the other three men were acting that something really spectacular had happened up out on it. They had been in the valley while those guys were having whatever adventure it was up there. And Jesus had just paid Peter's tax only, right? Only Peter's tax. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, they're having a struggle. This shows us how ordinary they were. They're just like you and I. They have the same kind of human problems that you and I have. And they're, they're arguing among themselves. They all wanted to be the greatest. See, they're, they're thinking in terms of earthly kingdoms. God's kingdom is established on love and equality, Right? But they're thinking Roman kingdoms. They're thinking earthly kingdoms that have a hierarchy where, you know, if you're going to have a kingdom, it has to be organized. There have to be degrees of ranks and responsibilities. There are emperors. There are senates. There are governors, kings, tetrarchs, tribunes, uh, centurions. So if the kingdom is going to be established, who's going to be your top-notch people here? Who's going to be your sub-kings, in other words? Now, what I see is amazing and sad is that they had just heard the Lord predict several times now his own upcoming suffering and death, right? And yet rather as they're walking on their way from wherever they were, Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum or down there at Mount Tabor, I don't know where they were walking, but as they're walking, instead of discussing among themselves, poor Jesus, he's going to suffer. I wonder what he's going to have to go through. Oh, hope he doesn't have to be crucified. And having empathy and sympathy and pity for him and talking to him about, Lord, tell us more. We want to know how to pray effectively for you. Please share with us what you're going to go through. Instead of that, what are they doing? Hmm. Thinking of self. 
They're thinking of themselves, not of him. They wanted to know who was going to get the most prestige and prominence in the kingdom of heaven. That's really sad. And now, by the way, and I know we've already discussed this and I don't want to get back into it in depth, but you know, if Peter was to have been the head of Christ's church, if upon Peter the church was to be built, then would not this have been the perfect place for Jesus to have said, who's the greatest? Peter. I've already said Peter, you know, and he would have reiterated if that was the situation, right? But he didn't. What did he do instead? He took a little. Now they're back in Peter's house. They've been disputing along the way. They're in Peter's house, and they're all gathered around him, and he takes a little child and puts the child in the midst of them and says, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, did you ever think that maybe that child was Peter's child? I read that in one of the commentators, and I thought, you know what? I never thought of that. But if you read the scripture, they're in Peter's house, and there's a child. It could have been one of it could have been one of Peter's children. I don't. Peter had a wife, so he could have children, right? So he um, he put the child he put the child in midst, and he gave his, gave his men a lesson on humility, a lesson that we seriously need to um, to listen to today. In the church today, which is so full of selfishness and competition, churches are in competition with one another, pastors are in competition with one another, you know, there's all kinds of personal ambition and disunity among God's people, which is really a terrible stumbling block. I tell my husband all the time, I don't know how anybody looks at the church today, you know, the church, and, and, and gets saved because we present such a stumbling block. We're so divided. That's what I love about this ministry. You know, we come from all kinds of different backgrounds and, ch- and even churches. And yet, you know what? If we're in Christ, we're one body, aren't we? I wish they could see this kind of unity, not the ecumenical unity. Now, I'm not talking about giving up doctrine and that sort of thing, but this kind of oneness in Christ. But, but we, the church, yeah, if they don't agree, you start another church and another church. And What was it that caused the Lord's disciples to argue? What is it that causes Christians today to fuss and feud so much? Well, to begin to answer this question, Jesus took this small child as his example, and he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or verily, one verily, I'm sorry, except ye be converted, and, that means turned around, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You know what he's saying there? For one thing, everybody's outside of the kingdom. If you have to enter into... That means you're outside of. Everybody is born outside of the kingdom. You have to enter into it, right? And and how is one that one can do this? Well, Jesus says that in order to enter into the kingdom, one must be be converted and become like little children. Being converted, Jesus says, requests that people become like little children. You know what? We should never, ever, ever overestimate, I mean underestimate, We should never underestimate the importance of children. They are very, very important. Actually, when we look at, and we're talking little children, before they're educated by us (laughs) in the world, little children. We can learn so much from little children. After I've spent a weekend with my grandchildren, I think sometimes they teach me more than I teach them. Children are the next adults. Did you know that? They'll, they'll take over. We have to pass the baton on to them. 
We should never underestimate the importance of, of children. Remember how furious the Lord became when his disciples, how he, um, did I say that right? How furious he became when his disciples tried to prevent some parents from bringing their children to him. He rebuked them right away. Now let the children come, suffer the little children to come unto me. So we can learn from little children. If we think about small children, infants, toddlers, we see them as totally dependent, right? Totally dependent on their parents or whoever's taking care of them. We see them as having simple trust in those who care for them. They are helpless on their own and they know it. <laughs> or what? Yeah, I guess they know it. And they, they don't pretend to have any kind of control over their own destiny. They are unpretentious. They exhibit no selfish ambition. Even though we, we know that they're sinful, they're born little sinners, yet they are very naive, innocent, and trusting. The verb become as in the Greek means to be made low as. Jesus is saying that the one who lowers himself and considers himself the least is the one who God sees as the greatest. It is better to be a trusting child of God than to be a scheming adult. The chief characteristic of of children is their implicit trust of their caretakers, who hopefully are their parents. Jesus is trying to teach that he can always be found where innocence and trust are the prevailing factors. And he would later tell the self-righteous Pharisees that he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. If only the world, if only we could get a grasp on that, but, you know, the world too, because they have it totally the other way. It's only a vessel that is empty of self and pride that God can fill. If you're so full of self and pride, there's nothing God can fill you with because you're already filled up. True humility means knowing yourself, accepting yourself, And being yourself, your best self, to the glory of God, not to the glory of self. Being the best self you can be to the glory of God. It actually means avoiding two extremes. Avoiding thinking less of yourself than you ought to. Now, there are a lot of people wrongly thinking of themselves. They hate themselves. But if you're a Christian, you should not hate yourself because Christ values you. He would have died for you if you were the only person on planet Earth. He values you very highly. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So true humility means not thinking less of yourself than you should, as Moses did. You know, when God called on him to serve him, he says, oh, no, you can't use me. I can't talk. That's wrong. That's one extreme. And the other extreme, of course, is thinking more of yourself than you ought to. A truly humble person does not deny the gifts that God has given to him or her, but uses those gifts to the glory of God. You know, I read this in one commentator. True humility is not thinking too low of yourself. It is not thinking of yourself at all. That's what denying self, dying to self. You know, remember when the Lord said we should, we should give so that our left hand doesn't even know what our right hand is doing? Same thing with self. 
You know, you're so involved in focusing on God and on other people that you really don't even think of yourself. You, you get out of the way so completely that you... That takes a lot of work, doesn't it? We're so, we're so self-centered. A little ch- a child, obviously, you know, born a sinner, possesses the same sin nature that we do, yet he has all the characteristics that make for tr- true humility. He trusts... And therefore, he willingly submits himself to the care of those who love him. He is dependent on those who take care of him. I love this part of little children. They are no respecter of persons. Does a little child, a baby, my nine-month-old precious little granddaughter, oh, you should see her. She's so cute. She's got the biggest, fattest cheeks. She's all cheeks and little, oh, and blue, blue, just crystal blue eyes. And I have got dark brown. But anyway, my grandson has brown eyes. But she, yes, no, I wanted her to have brown eyes. She had my. <laughs> I don't know where the blue eyes came from. My mother, I guess. But anyway, she she doesn't care, and neither does my grandson. He's only two. They don't care what I look like in the morning when I get out of bed. You know, they don't care if my hair is bad and my wrinkles and no makeup and my breath is bad. They still love me. They're no respecter of persons. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you love that about little children? They, love, they don't care what color your skin is. They don't care how much money you have or how little money. They don't care how educated you are. They don't care. They love you anyway. Oh, it just, hmm. <laughs> you can see I really love this grandparent thing. Anyway, they're, and they're, they have a notable absence of boasting and ambition. For greatness, it is only as they get into this world system, you know, which lays, lies in the lap of the wicked one, that they learn to be greedy for position and prominence so that they want to become a celebrity instead of a servant. And that's what we need to fight so badly in this world today. How many of our young people put before them celebrities that are of Satan? I mean, the wrong kind. All these, oh, these women today that are being lifted up by our society are nothing but glorified prostitutes. I mean, they are the lowest of the low. Playboy bunnies and just awful. And yet young people are putting them, Paris Hilton and, you know, the one that just died and all, they're their heroes? Come on. You know, we need to set in front of them godly idols, not idols, but godly examples. We really need to fight that. Anyway, those who preach a gospel that propagates self and positive thinking, positive self-image, self-esteem, all that kind of stuff. You know what? They're teaching a gospel apart from what this Bible teaches. Beware of that. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the who? To the humble. All right, next week we're going to look at being stepping stones, not stumbling blocks. Lord willing, you'll all be here, and I hope you enjoy the rest of this beautiful day. Get outside today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the beauty of your creation. Thank you for all the examples and the lessons you teach us through the scripture. There are so many. We can't. <laughs> I just pray, Lord, that we can learn to apply them to our hearts, that we would be doers of the word, not hearers only. So many things to think about. Help us, Lord, to meditate on your word this week, to make time to do our homework lessons and to get deeper into your word so that we might be made more like Jesus Christ, where we pray in his name. Amen.